everyone, and welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we talk about the big ideas behind science writing. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and this month we're talking about something universal, food, specifically how we experience its flavors. And we all read Bob Holmes's new book, aptly titled Flavor, The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense, to help inform today's conversation. I'm here with our amazing 538 science team. We have senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker. Hey, Maggie. Hey, we have lead health writer Anna Maria Barry Jester. Hey, Anna. Hi, Blythe. And we have lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Christy. Hi. All right, Anna. Can you give us the rundown on flavor? Yeah. Uh, do you mean <laughs> Do you mean the item or the book? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the concept. The book is what I is what I this mean. This is a thing. This is a topic that's way too complicated for me to try and give you a rundown about flavor itself. <laughs> yeah, just real quick. So this is a book that looks at the science between what happens on our tongues when we consume things, which is you know the sense that's called taste, which is what most of us think about as flavor. But that's actually just a tiny section of this book, right? Because that's actually a tiny section of how we experience flavor, and so there's a whole bunch of stuff in this book that kind of explains how we experience flavor. So there's sections looking at how smell influences how we experience flavor, the physiological reactions we have elsewhere in the body, how our bodies learn to equate certain things with taste and flavor, like just as learned behavior has nothing to do with the actual aroma or taste. And then there's a ton of information that's sort of about the larger context about how we consume food and what that does to how we experience flavor. So there's food aesthetics and a whole section about commercial companies and how they create flavors for manufactured foods, breedings of fruits and vegetables. So all this comes together to kind of paint a picture about how little we know about this thing that's sort of so important to our lives, I would say both culturally and in terms of, you know, being alive. (laughs) Right. So it's, it's super interesting. You mentioned some of the elements of flavor. And the, one of the fascinating pieces is that it's smell, it's taste, it's mouthfeel, and it's culture. And that's just really fascinating. So I'd love to talk through some of the things that stood out to you all in, in those areas of flavor. I think that there were definitely a couple of things that really stood out to me on the culture aspect of flavor. Because when they were talking about how Americans used to be blind to the idea of umami as a basic flavor sense, and umami being like that just savory characteristic that you get from, you know, tomatoes and cheese and steak. And the idea that like, we just didn't register that And then once it sort of started to become culturally important, we started to taste it the same way that the Japanese always had. And it reminded me of, I think it's actually kind of bunk, the idea that like, oh, the ancient Greeks couldn't see the color blue, right? Or like the much more accurate idea of American psychological disorders sort of being exported along with our culture so that now you have teenagers in China starting to have American-style anorexia in a way that they never did before. That, that's super interesting to me. Yeah, and I think this really gets at a very important point that he makes early on in the book, and that is that so much of what we experience as flavor is sort of paying attention and noticing things. And one thing that we sort of need to be able to describe this is a language. We don't naturally have a language for flavors. And so this umami thing, to me, it really points out, like, once you sort of name it and have a language for it, all of a sudden, and also it's sort of like pointing out that it exists, and then you see it everywhere or in this case, taste it everywhere, right? Right, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, is it is it the Candyman that if you say his name or whatever, he becomes real? I mean, is that is that the right, <laughs> right. scary movie? We've gotten, we've gotten on to Candyman. Okay, good. You know, Christy, it's interesting that, you're, that you bring that up because this is like a longstanding debate that surfaces frequently in the field of linguistics. This like question of whether or not having language to describe something changes the way you perceive it or if it only gives you language. And this is a recurring debate. But one thing I think that Holmes makes really clear that there's very little debate about is that just the the sort of act of spending the time contemplating and trying to verbalize these things helps you recognize them better than you might have otherwise. Absolutely. And that's something that I've, I've really experienced. So my husband's a winemaker. We have a small winery. And this is something I've really noticed. People come to our tasting room to taste things. And often people are very intimidated by wine because there are all these jerks out there that have tried to make it into, into this like really snobby thing and make it be like this vaunted knowledge. And it really isn't. Like it's just fermented grape juice. <laughs> but sort of <laughs> when you give How people dare you language say such a thing. Things, and so, I know. No, my husband, my husband would say the same thing. He is like the total anti-snob. So when people come into our tasting room, if I hand them a flavor wheel, it can help a lot. And what the flavor wheel does is it's a circle and each ring of it has sort of different characteristics that you might look for in a wine. And so these are, are aromas or characteristics that you might ascertain. So for instance, there might be oak, there might be vanilla. Some wines are fruity where you might have, okay, so I taste a fruitiness. Is it raspberry? Is it cherry? Is it strawberry? But by sort of giving them answers to choose from, it helps them sort of pay attention because sort of asking like, does that smell like strawberry? Well, it doesn't. So that makes you sort of think, well, what does it smell like? So it's kind of giving someone a language to begin with and giving them prompts um, that will help you sort of move along and figure out what to call these things. Yeah. I think there was something in the book where he was talking about how there were compounds, like flavor compounds or scent compounds in this case, that you could not smell at all until you actually sat down and trained yourself to be used to them in the context of your world. And that was such an interesting thing to me, both that it can be changed, like you say, that like people can sort of learn to smell these things they didn't know how to smell or that they didn't know how to taste. But also just that like, by sheer accident of where you were born and what you grew up around, that culture can alter something that on its surface sounds just purely chemical, purely biological. Like that is such a weird mm -hmm. power for culture to have to me. And Maggie, there was an example about almonds. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah. Well, there's, there's one thing where he was, where he was saying that like to most Westerners, the taste of almonds is something that you associate with sweet. So when you smell almonds, you know, you're thinking of sweet foods usually, and it, becomes this enhancer of making things taste sweeter when you're smelling almonds and eating food. But that isn't true with people in Japan. So like Japanese people, almond is a common pickling spice. So it's actually an umami enhancer. And when you smell almonds, when Japanese people smell almonds, it doesn't make things taste more sweet at all. And that is like, that's super interesting. Yeah. 
And I think one thing that's interesting here, too, is that it really shows the power of expectation. And this expectation effect can be very powerful. And I mean, I think the best example of this, right, is this very famous experiment. And this has been done numerous times, but where they took a bunch of wine snobs, you know, trained wine tasters, and they gave them some wines to taste. But unbeknownst to them, one of the whites had been colored. They'd added some red food coloring to it. And so that was enough to trick trick these tasters. And these, these were trained professionals. You know, they weren't amateurs. That was enough for them to believe that they were red wines and to find all of these red wine flavors in them. And I think that one thing Holmes does here in the book is he's, he, you know, it's really easy to say, ha ha, those wine snobs don't know anything. But I think the real takeaway here is that expectation is a very powerful part of the flavor process. And, you know, one of the takeaways for the book, I would say, is that flavor is not one thing or another. It's actually something that's constructed in your brain. And in fact, one of the chapters, I believe, has the word brain in the in the title. It's something like the flavor in your brain. But basically, it's the sensory experience that your brain is taking all of these different inputs together and, and building this experience. So you can't really take it down to one thing or another. It's not just aroma. It's not just, you know, the taste buds. It's all of these things together, including sound and texture. Right, Christy. And one of the things that when we talk about expectation, especially with wine, there's so much evidence around this, right? It's not just what you expect in terms of flavor. It's also this question around like social expectations. And so, you know, there's numerous experiments showing that people really like wine that's actually less expensive. I, in college, I worked at Christie's auction house in the wine department with these extremely posh British men. And it was so interesting because they, the first thing they said when I started working there and we were tasting on Fridays, they would do these, you know, tastings of their sort of finest wines that they were going to sell at auction. And they would always just kind of beat it into me. Like it doesn't, it, it only matters what you like. And there's no such thing as pairing appropriately your food and your wine. It only matters what you like. And I, there's been this sort of growing and wonderful movement among the food world that I, I really love lately where it is less about sort of ranking foods or this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing and more about letting people try and understand what they enjoy and recognizing that what you're saying where this construction of flavor is something that involves an enormous number of inputs that we, many of which we don't even understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. What I like to say when people come to our, our tasting room is, look, wine is like music. Like there are many different types and there's no right answer. Like, you know, some people like jazz, other people like hip hop and that's okay. And so I think really for me, it's about having that full experience. And the thing that makes things like wine so pleasurable is just noticing and savoring and sort of taking in all those inputs and, and seeing what they put together. And you know, if you have a nice a nice bottle of wine. It's just the pleasure really comes from all of those different sensations together. You know, if you think it's an expensive bottle, that is actually shown to enhance your pleasure. And that's okay. Like, I don't think that we need to demonize, you know, the things that are influencing us here. Christy, I want to ask you about a wine experiment that you just did. Can you tell us about your Sauvignon Blanc adventure? Absolutely. So this is a, a little experiment that Bob described in the book, and I thought, oh, I have to try this. And so last night, I had a, a nice bottle of a New Zealand uh, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. And this is a wine that has a lot of sort of vegetative qualities to it. Green pepper is often a flavor. It's very sort of pungent. In fact, it's funny, going back to these expectations and whatnot, when I first started 
experiencing Sauvignon Blanc, I didn't like it very much. And it, it can sometimes have an aroma of cat pee, which is very unpleasant. But over time, I've come to really love it. But it can be a flavor it. enhancer. I know, in, it can. Uh, Holmes says in the book. It yeah. can, <laughs> and absolutely. And so, but one of my dearest friends, Rosemary, <laughs> loves Sauvignon Blanc. And so she always, when she comes over, she will bring a bottle and we enjoy it. And I really do believe that my enjoyment of her company drinking the wine has made it like I really associate it with her and with our friendship and, and all of that. So anyway, last night, my husband and I did this little experiment, Bob's sort of instructions. And so basically the idea here is that pairing the wine with other flavors can sort of enhance or bring out certain flavors in the wine. And this is, you know, we talk a lot about pairing wine with different foods and things like this, but here the, the purpose is really about seeing how just sort of in very close proximity taste one thing and then the wine can sort of affect how you're tasting it. So what we did is we first, we just switched and, and, you know, enjoyed one, one sip of the wine and, and sort of noted its characteristics. So it was a very acid, bright, crisp, very lovely wine. And then we ate a piece of green pepper, which I think everyone knows what a green pepper tastes like. And it was very interesting. The green pepper really sort of enhanced the bitterness of the wine. And it also sort of brought out some of the herbaceousness. So it, it really sort of, the flavors in the wine that were similar sort of ro- rose up. And then we drank a little bit of water and ate some pieces of pear. And also the other thing I uh, will note here is that we didn't just eat the pear, but I noticed that this particular pear was very fragrant. So getting that that aroma. And um, you know, one of the things that the book really talks about is how important aroma and smell is for taste and for flavor. And so after eating the pear, drinking the wine, then it really brought out some of the acidity in it, which was really interesting. That wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting it to taste a lot sweeter, but it, it almost sort of created more contrast where the sweetness of the pear made the acidity of the wine sort of rise out. And it was a very nice, nice acidity coming through. It may sound unpleasant when I said it was acidic, but it it was a really nice enhancement. And then the third and final one that we did is grapefruit. And so Sauvignon Blanc also can have some sort of tropical fruit uh, tastes in it. And this was this was probably my favorite pairing. It really heightened the sweetness of the wine and made it seem a lot fruitier. I, I wasn't expecting that. I really expected that the grapefruit would make it seem... I, if you would have asked me in advance, I would have thought that the grapefruit would make it taste more acidic. But in fact, it was sort of the opposite. It, it brought out the grapefruit notes in the wine, but it really made the, the wine taste a little bit sweeter and, and fruitier. So it was a really interesting experiment. And I think it's something that you could do with, with any kinds of, of wines and fruits really is do this sort of thing. I mean, I know cheese is something that people often, often um, eat with wine. And I have definitely noticed that that can alter how you're tasting it as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And there are tons of experiments in the book. You know, there's, he suggests that you blindfold yourself and smell spices in your house and try to figure out what they are and that it's probably going to be harder than you think it is. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other things you can do. And that was kind of one of my favorite parts of the book was this, like, let's do some science and let's see how our own perceptions are colored by our experiences and our expectations and what things look like. I, it's just really a, kind of a fun, fascinating look at, at how all of these different parts of flavor come together. Practically speaking. Were any of you guys thinking about The Unpersuadables yes. when you read this? Like the the book that we read <laughs> a couple months ago? Yeah. Yeah. That was basically all about how like everything you think you perceive in the world is totally colored by 
you know, the unobjectivity of your own brain. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 basically, yeah, like it's, it's just another one of those moments of like, nothing is real. Nothing <laughs> is. Yeah. Well, but I'm going to, I actually disagree with that a little bit, Maggie. I, and I, but I think, and I think it's really important. So like, for example, this question of organic fruits and vegetables and whether they taste better than non-organic. Yeah. So he talks about that a little bit in the book, but basically, you know, lots of people want to know the answer to that. Right. And right. The studies are extremely inconclusive. If you, if you make people blind to whether something's organic or not, it's really inconclusive whether or not they think it tastes better. However, if you tell people that it's organic, they definitely tend to think it tastes better. And the thing I think is really important is that that's not people tricking themselves. They're actually experiencing a better flavor. That goes back to the idea that flavor is not just this physical thing. It's it's the perception and our interpretation of that of all of those perceptions that we're taking in. And so it's actually quite legitimate to, you know, think that if I expect something to taste better, that it will. I, I, I totally agree with you that like it's not that people are lying to themselves, but there's something about the like and then it is real to you. That to me is like, well, there's no objectivity. Let's all just go. <laughs> so much, so much for Plato. <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, this is what this means. I don't want to hear any crap from Anna or Christy about olives anymore. Which <laughs> How I hate. can you hate <laughs> olives? They're they're one of life's <laughs> pleasures. So uh, we're done with that conversation. <laughs> life, I'm so glad you brought that up because I keep. You know what I thought about this whole time I was reading this book is like, what are you supposed to do as a parent? <laughs> Because on one hand, you got to right. eat diverse foods while you're pregnant and while you're breastfeeding so that you can help train their palates. You should help your kid be adventurous. On the other hand, what if they have, what if they're one of these super tasters where everything except for steak and potatoes is super bitter and they, you know what I mean? It's horrendous experience for them to eat it. So super tasters are basically people with a larger number of taste receptors on their tongues on their and on their taste buds. But but what's interesting is that we it, that doesn't mean you just taste more or that you have a stronger reaction to tastes. And it's there's like it seem to be a lot of very confusing things going on. So some taste super tasters are really good at identifying um, flavors and that kind of thing. And others are incredibly sensitive to certain flavors. And so there are a lot of super tasters where anything bitter is sort of excruciating to consume. And it, what I love, though, is so you can count, right, these taste receptors and taste buds, but that doesn't exactly tell you how what it's what, what food is going to taste like to you, which I think is so interesting. This whole thing also is really interesting to me as, like, the parent of toddlers. And it makes so much more sense now why, like, my three-and-a-half-year-old will have some days where, like, she loves broccoli and she loves carrots and she loves whatever. And then like the next day she'll just be like, I'm never eating eggs again. They're terrible. And it's so easy to like ascribe that to like, you know, just hashtag toddlers are awful, but it's also could just be like a legitimate construction of what she is associating with those foods on a given day in terms of emotion, in terms of smell, in terms of like all of these other things that shape what the flavor is to you. And like there could legitimately be days that eggs taste awful. Or Maggie, it could be that your broccoli was in the refrigerator longer. And so the taste decomposed more and it was less bitter. (laughs) That's really, really good point too. So there's all these experiments in the book and we decided that we would do a little sparks experiment for your and our pleasure. 
And that is going to entail something called miracle berries. Anna, can you give us an explanation? All right. I'll see if I can get this right because there's actually a lot of misinformation out there about miracle berries. So um, we know they are a a berry that comes from Western Africa um, and they change the perception of tastes on your tongue. So we know a lot about the structure of the protein that's in miracle berries, and we know a lot about how our bodies react to them, which we'll get to in a minute, but we don't really know a huge amount about how they do what they do. So I, I read up on some of the most recent scholarship on this, and basically where researchers are is that they think that the protein sticks to our sweet receptors and dulls them, so it prevents them from sort of doing their thing when they come into contact with sugar. But when the the opposite happens when the protein comes into contact with acid. And so then that makes the sweet receptors go gangbusters. And so it makes you more sensitive to acids and to, to perceive that taste as you would a sweet. Hmm. Okay. So we all have some of these berries in front of us. We have a variety of food items and we are going to attempt to describe to you all what it tastes like to try them. Okay, so we're going to try some foods. We all got our foods from different places. We, so we all also, you know, some of us tried the bit, the pill. Some of us had the berry. So this is not like a randomized controlled experiment. I mean, it's not randomized anyway. But this is not like a super hardcore science experiment, to be clear. But it's going to be awesome. I'm glad so that we are pseudo-sciencing. <laughs> right. We're pseudo-sciencing. Let's start with the, the lemon, everybody. Lemon. Mmm. Oh, my God. Mm. Oh, that's so weird. Mm. That's super good. Mm. Oh. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. It does feel like a tangerine. Oh my god. Wow. This, this is amazing. It was definitely strike. Oh, and it hit like it hits you in the back of the throat. Wow. It's so weird. <laughs> it gets sweeter. It gets, it's really good. I should note that I have I have no regrets about just biting into the lemon hole. Yeah, I want to eat this whole lemon. Dang. It's tart in the front of my tongue. That was amazing. <laughs> right? That, that was super cool. It just it tastes does. like lemonade. It tastes, it yeah, I want to eat really an entire sweet. lemon. I yeah. might after this is over. I just want to eat more lemon. Yeah, take another berry, eat another lemon. Let's do sugar. Let's do let's do sh- sugar straight straight sugar. I have a sugar cube that I'm going to do now. I have okay. uh, I have part of a cupcake. I have a lifesaver. Okay. Again, super scientific. <laughs> it mm. pretty much tastes the same. This isn't doing anything for me. Okay, so I tried. I ate part of this cupcake earlier at lunchtime because I wanted to know. You got to do the first science, like the baseline for science. Um, and now that I'm eating it now, what I taste mostly, I, it's, it's much more intensely chocolate. Oh, like it's less, less sugar, less of a sugar, more flavor, chocolate flavor and more of a chocolate flavor. I actually like it better now. Interesting. So it like sort of suppresses the sugar. I, I got to say this pi- pineapple lifesaver tastes exactly like it normally does, which makes me wonder if it's just because the smell I don't know. Well, but at the same time, when was the last time you had a pineapple lifesaver? Like maybe it is less sweet than it would be otherwise. Don't judge me, Blythe. <laughs> Did you have you had seven pineapple lifesavers already today? <laughs> well, I mean, um. <laughs> I'm sitting in a sea of Sour Patch Kids and lifesavers. What do you want from Excellent. me? Excellent. <laughs> it was a. <laughs> it's been a good Halloween. So, what should we do next, guys? What What, what do you want to try next? Kale. 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 Okay. I have raw kale that I bought in. New York. Yeah. Go ahead, Christy. I actually have a, a little mustard green that I got from my garden, which is usually kind of a very spicy green. Um, anyway, so I'm going to taste it. I'm not convinced that this kale is better than it otherwise yeah. would be. My kale's giving me a really strong kale vibe. No other vibes. <laughs> so the, the mustard 
tastes so much sweeter. It doesn't, it doesn't, it tastes like it's taken down 10 notches. Like it's, it's sweeter. It's yeah. Like, maybe it's muted. Yeah. It's, it's muted. Yeah. Okay. What next? Should we do the dill pickles next? Yeah. Pickles? So got yeah. Dill pickle action. This thing ruined my pickles. Oh. Oh, that's really weird. Oh, my God. That is really weird. <laughs> it does taste sweet. This made kosher dills taste like gherkins, and I'm upset about yeah, that. But- <laughs> oh, I don't like this. What if this makes yeah. me not like pickles anymore? Oh, no. Are the, are the effects reversible? <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's not. And it's I'm going to close but, my eyes. <laughs> you, but you know what? To me, it's like the Uncanny Valley. It's not quite a sweet pickle. It's like right, in between, right. which is bad. Mm, it's not a good mm, not a good look. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Hard pass. Um, oh, okay, we need to move on. I need something else in my okay. mouth. <laughs> you know what's weird, though, is on the like roof of my mouth, it feels like vinegar. But it tastes horrible. Hmm. I'm eating some more lemon to cleanse the palate. <laughs> <laughs> lemon palate cleanse. <laughs> I want to do the chili next. I have mm. this like hot pepper. Yeah, the chili. Uh, it's a pickled hot pepper, though. But I think okay. I have a jalapeno, so I don't have a, I have a jalapeno I don't probably, too. Have, probably have different kinds of peppers. I have a jalapeno also. Okay, I'm gonna take a. So we're doing that next. Okay. Mm. 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 It tastes totally different. If I'm honest, it tastes like a green pepper to me. Yes. Yeah. Mine is really hot. Yeah. It um, does. It tastes like a sweet, very sweet pepper. Mine ta- yeah, mine tastes like a mine tastes like a red sweet pepper. No, mine tastes like a hot jalapeno. Huh. Yeah. I got a little eye watering happening here. I took a really big bite. Maybe that was unwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining you blithe munching on it like a carrot. I was. That was idiotic. I'm gonna have That is exactly it. what I'm doing, actually. <laughs> oh. That was intense. So like if you were gonna enter one of those chili eating contests, you should just like eat some of these berries beforehand you'd totally win <laughs> huh not me apparently it's still too intense okay so la- last round i think we should go ahead and do our wild card round i am going to have some blue cheese what are you guys gonna have my wild card was the pepper so i am i'm, I'm not doing anything i'm having balsamic vinegar Ooh. i am doing watermelon pop rocks I know you all are really sad that you didn't think of this, but here we go. <laughs> well, Christy, your grocery store didn't even have Twinkies. So I can't believe your grocery store has Pop Rocks and not Twinkies. I know. My grocery store oh has my God. Pop Rocks, but not Twinkies. I have to say, though, if I were given the choice, I would totally choose the Pop Rocks. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I am tasting the explosion. Wow. <laughs> Oh, can you hear this? <laughs> huh. Oh my gosh, the Pop Rocks do not taste like watermelon at all. They just taste like sweet and poppy. They are exploding on my tongue. Sweet and poppy. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to dry some more. Christy, when was the last time you had Pop Rocks? Do you know? Probably 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay wow i feel like it, so it would be very easy to continue to eat all of the things but this has been really interesting with i mean i've never done this before so it's been kind of it's been kind of cool i was a little bit underwhelmed by this experience like i from all of the hype i had sort of come to expect that like everything would be totally new and crazy and like different than anything you'd ever experienced and it 
you know, it's it's lemonade and some stuff that tastes a little different. But it blows your mind, like this idea of like something something is changing, is adjusting the flavors flavors that you, that you know really really well, and it's very bizarre and creepy overall. I think. I mean, it's cool, but it's also bizarre and creepy. So now that we've done that, we're going to pause here for a message from this week's sponsor. A great night's sleep can help you have a great day, and people sleeping on Casper mattresses are having a lot of great days. The Casper mattress was invented with two high-tech foams that gives you all the support you need and guarantees you get the best night's sleep ever. It ships for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds a mattress. It's easy to get to your bedroom. And Casper lets you try the mattress for 100 nights in your own home, risk-free. They'll come pick it up if you don't love it and refund you everything, no questions asked. From its breakthrough design to its packaging to letting you try it for 100 nights, it's no wonder Casper was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative brands of 2017. Get a Casper and get a great night's sleep every night. Go to casper.com WTP and use code WTP for $50 toward the purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com WTP code WTP and get $50 toward the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, and we're back talking about Bob Holmes's book Flavor and all kinds of other things related to how we understand tastes of our food. Now that we've done our own experiment, let's talk a little bit more about the science. Uh, there's a lot of science in the book, of course. That's why we read it. But it's really interesting. You see some of the change, the way science changed over time, some misunderstandings of the science. And I'd love to talk about some of those ideas. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed kind of in this book over and over was this theme about there being repeated, handed down, received wisdom in in science that scientists assume to be true and that we teach to small children. But then it turns out that those things aren't true at all. And all the people repeating these facts over and over never really bothered to check up on them. I mean, there's the idea of there being four tastes that you learned in grade school, and that's wrong. And there's this idea of like, oh, there are 10,000 smells that scientists believe for years. And then in the book, he says that that, that turned out to just be this half-assed estimate from a paper in 1927 that nobody ever really checked up on. And that is really interesting to me because, you know, it, when you think about like the rhetoric of science, the idea of just not believing received wisdom is kind of the entire point of science. And so it's really interesting. To and yet me. it happens in science all the time, exactly. which is really fascinating, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So along those same lines, I think sort of the opposite end of that is this idea that like, oh, so it must be genetics. And like, there's a whole thread in this book where he's looking at genes and like, it's very clear that genetics play a role in how we taste and how we perceive flavor. But the idea that there's a single gene that can explain everything has just been shown again and again to not, not be true. And, you know, I guess that's sort of the, the story of genetics as a field. But I've, I found that really interesting. So, for instance, 23andMe's cilantro gene, it turns out, you know, and this is, the gene, this is a gene that they say is associated with whether you like cilantro and it tastes pleasant to you or if you're like my sister who claims that it tastes like soap, which I totally don't understand. <laughs> But this gene that 23andMe has apparently only accounts for about 9% of the difference between those two groups of people. So, you know, 
basically getting yourself tested for this gene doesn't tell you anything that just tasting cilantro can't tell you. And so I thought that was pretty cool and interesting. I'm definitely going to be telling uh, anti-cilantrites that they can't just blame it on their genetics now. But I don't, I don't know <laughs> that that's true, though. I think that's wrong. <laughs> well, but wait, just because we don't understand the genetics doesn't mean that it's not genetic. Right. Also, like, I, I think that that's wrong. It's just that it's not this one gene. And, and you know, it's sort of like, that's like, that would be like saying height isn't genetic because well, there is isn't one okay, height fine. gene. Like, clearly height is genetic, but it's multifactorial. So but that doesn't allow me to be Sorry. smug, Christy. Also, also, I know, being fair. smug is fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, some of the things that I learned, or one of the things that I learned was that you're not supposed to put tomatoes in the fridge. I didn't know that. And if we could just talk briefly about this, our sense of smell, that was also some interesting science. I know Maggie and Anna, you both had some thoughts on that. Yeah. In the book, he talks about how there's actually kind of two different senses of smell. Uh, there's the smell that goes in through your nose and then there's what comes up through the back of your throat. And those are completely different and you experience them differently and they play different roles in how you yeah experience the world and food. I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that really blew my mind and I did not know this is that there's a lot of evidence that in fact humans have really good senses of smell. I really thought that whole thing was true that like dogs could smell way better than humans. And you know, he points out a few of the things that are going on there, but why we think that. And one of them is of course that our noses are not on the ground where most smells are. They're like at our mouths because they are they they're for the purpose of of eating and experiencing food. I just that just blew my mind. Yeah, same. That was really super super interesting. And the stuff about like the severe depression that affects people who had lost their sense of smell and just were only eating to live and uh, that there was records of like people just sort of wasting away because they just couldn't even bear themselves to eat food they couldn't smell. Mhm. There's also the part where Holmes does this experiment where he kills his taste buds using a chemical and then tastes food that he can smell but can't really taste and he described that as extremely unpleasant like eating clay pellets so in some ways it's you know smell is extremely extremely important but also it's a myth that it's more important yeah than actual taste of the food too I thought it was really interesting that people who lose their sense of smell don't necessarily like you would expect them that they don't like food, it doesn't taste good, and they all lose weight. And that, in fact, isn't the case. Most of them don't don't lose weight, and and it isn't like it's not a good way to lose weight if you're trying to diet or something. Um, which to me was sort of said something interesting about obesity, right? Well, yeah, and also our ability to survive in spite of uh, all the so there are all these many dynamics to how we experience flavor. And even if you lose one of them, we continue to eat, even though it becomes a non-enjoyable activity, which is is pretty interesting. But yeah, to your point, Christy, I mean, there's one thing that was really striking to me is that, so for example, there's this description of an um, experiment involving Pringles, and it, the experiment wins an ignoble award, and everybody thinks it's really hilarious that they did this experiment. And you kind of see that throughout the book, which is so weird to me because, you know, we have this international global obesity epidemic and yet people think it's kind of funny to study flavor and how we experience food and there's a real disconnect there i kind of to what anna was saying like i think it's really interesting that i mean in the book he kind of talks about how science hasn't really treated flavor as an important thing to study and 
that there's also been this sort of association between science and just not caring about flavor. I mean, like all the way from that sort of mid-century, you know, scientific cookery where everything tasted terrible and came out of a can all the way up to like Soylent, right? There's this idea that if you're you're scientific and you're efficient and you're doing this in a in a serious way, you don't taste anything. And that is such a weird it's so weird to me that like there's this one sense that science doesn't seem to care much about. Yeah, but although I'm not, I I hate to keep disagreeing with you, Maggie, but I don't think it's true. Like the 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 there's been a tremendous amount of science on flavor, and it's coming from the food companies that are trying to make processed foods taste better, right? And there's a whole chapter about manufactured flavors, which I found extremely interesting. And you know, we have a lot of people that say, "Oh, uh, packaged foods, you know, they're terrible, and those artificial flavors are, are awful. You don't want those." But you know, and they, they say, oh, I don't want to have all those chemicals in my food, but, you know, food is chemical. You know, chem- chemicals are what, what the world is made up of, or molecules, right? Um, and these artificial flavors actually have fewer of those chemicals than the natural flavorings do. Um, but it was interesting to me also to hear how difficult some of these flavors are to replicate artificially. Um, that, that was kind of an interesting thread. But he was talking about how, like, there had been all of this research from the chemical companies on, like, how you make strawberry flavor, how you make orange flavor. But that the, I, I seem to remember a couple times in the book him saying that, you know, there just has not been a real emphasis in the academic science community, like the research science community, to understand what makes flavor tick, how flavor works, why, how you know, how flavor affects us, what affects flavor until relatively recently. Right, right. That's true. And the whole neuroscience of it. Because really, I mean, when you come down to it, it's neuroscientists who should be studying it, right? Because it is sort of a phenomenon of the brain. Mm-hmm. Well, he does talk about, you know, obviously this as a neglected sense and also how the science of this is really starting to ramp up. So we are, you know, I don't know if the pace is picking up, but that seems to be definitely the, one of the suggestions of the book um, that I found really interesting, too. Okay, we need to wrap it up. So I'd like to know if you all would recommend Flavor by Bob Holmes. Start with Anna. Yeah, absolutely, especially because it has all these wonderful experiments in there that you can repeat at home and learn a lot about your own likes and learn how to enjoy food more. It's just really delightful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Maggie? Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting, and it's just kind of a nice exploration of how biology and chemistry and culture affect your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And Christy, what do you think? Absolutely. I just, I absolutely love this book. And it's really kind of an example of my favorite type of science book, which is, you know, you're really getting this lesson in how science works and what we know and what we don't know. But it's, you know, in the context of something that's really just so fascinating. And I, I loved all the experiments and, and all of the different experiences that Holmes went through and, and did while reporting the book. It was just, it was just a delight from page one till, till the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I definitely thought it hit on a lot of universal components of our lives in terms of what we eat and how we eat it. So I would also recommend it. All right. Thanks so much, Anna Maria Barry Jester. Thanks, Blythe. Thank you, Christy Ashwanden. Thanks, Blythe. Thanks, Maggie Kurth Baker. Thank you, Blythe. That's it for this episode of Sparks, where we discuss the big ideas related to flavor by Bob Holmes. In the second part of this episode, Anna will talk to Holmes. So stay tuned. Thanks to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow for production assistance. 
Katie Ferguson is our editor. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. And as you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcasts at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks again for listening.